Chapter Three of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Three. How Hordle John cousined the Fuller of Lymington. It is not, however, in the nature of things, that a lad of twenty, with young life glowing in his veins, and all the wide world before him, should spend his first hours of freedom in mourning for what he had left. Long ere Alan was out of sound of the Bewley bells, he was striding sturdily along, swinging his staff and whistling as merry as the birds in the thicket. It was an evening to raise a man's heart the sun shining slantwise through the trees, through delicate traceries across the road, with bars of golden light between. Away in the distance, before and behind, the green boughs, now turning in places to a coppery redness, shot their broad arches across the track. The still summer air was heavy with the resinous smell of the great forest. Here and there a tawny brook prattled out from among the underwood, and lost itself again in the ferns and brambles upon the further side. Save the dull piping of insects, and the sough of the leaves, there was silence everywhere, the sweet, restful silence of nature. And yet there was no want of life. The whole wide wood was full of it. Now it was a lithe, furtive stoat which shot across the path on some fell errand of its own. Then it was a wild-cat, which squatted upon the outlying branch of an oak, and peeped at the traveller with a yellow and dubious eye. Once it was a wild sow, which scuttled out of the bracken with two young sounders at her heels, and once a lordly red stag walked daintily out from among the tree-trunks, and looked around him with the fearless gaze of one who lived under the king's own high protection. Alan gave his staff a merry flourish, however, and the red deer bethought him that the king was far off, so streaked away from whence he came. The youth had now journeyed considerably beyond the furthest domains of the abbey. He was the more surprised, therefore, when, on coming round a turn in the path, he perceived a man clad in the familiar garb of the order, and seated in a clump of heather by the roadside. Alan had known every brother well, but this was a face which was new to him, a face which was very red and puffed, working this way and that, as though the man was sore perplexed in his mind. Once he shook both hands furiously in the air, and twice he sprang from his seat and hurried down the road. When he rose, however, Alan observed that his robe was much too long and loose for him in every direction, trailing upon the ground and bagging about his ankles so that even with trussed-up skirts he could make little progress. He ran once, but the long gown clogging him so that he slowed down into a shambling walk, and finally plumped into the heather once more. "'Young friend,' said he, when Alan was abreast of him, "'I fear from thy garb thou canst know little of the Abbey of Bewley.' "'You are in error, my friend,' the clerk answered, "'for I have spent all my days within its walls.' "'Hast so indeed?' cried he. "'Then perhaps canst tell me the name of a great loathly lump of a brother, with freckled face, and a hand like a spade. His eyes were black, and his hair was red, and his voice like a parish bull. I trow there cannot be two alike in the same cloisters.' 
"'That can surely be no other than Brother John,' said Alan. "'I trust he has done you no wrong, that you should be so hot against him.' "'Wrong, quotha?' cried the other, jumping out of the heather. "'Wrong? Why, he hath stolen every plaque of clothing off my back, if that be a wrong, and hath left me here in this sorry frock of white folding, so that I have shame to go back to my wife, lest she think that I have donned her old kirtle. Harrow and alas, that I should ever have met him!' "'But how camest this?' asked the young clerk, who could scarce keep from laughter at the sight of the hot little man so swathed in the great white cloak. "'It came this way,' he said, sitting down once more. "'I was passing this way, hoping to reach Lymington ere nightfall, when I came on this red-headed knave, seated even where we're sitting now. I uncovered and louted as I passed, thinking that he might be a holy man at his horizons, but he called to me, and asked me if I had heard speak of the new indulgence in favour of the Cistercians. "'Not I,' I answered. "'Then the worse for thy soul,' said he and with that he broke into a long tale how that on account of the virtues of the abbot burghersh it had been decreed by the pope that whoever should wear the habit of a monk of beaulieu for as long as he might say the seven psalms of david should be assured of the kingdom of heaven when i heard this i prayed him on my knees that he would give me the use of his gown which after many contentions he at last agreed to do on my paying him three marks towards the regilding of the image of Lawrence the Martyr. Having stripped his robe, I had no choice but to let him have the wearing of my good leathern jerkin and hose, for, as he said, it was chilling to the blood and unseemly to the eye to stand frockless while I made my horizons. He had scarce got them on, and it was a sore labour, seeing that my inches will scarce match my girth. He had scarce got them on, I say and I not yet at the end of the second psalm, when he bade me do honour to my new dress, and with that set off down the road as fast as his feet could carry him. For myself I could no more run than if I'd been sewn in a sack. So here I sit, and here I am likely to sit, before I set eyes upon my clothes again. Nay, friend, take it not so sadly, said Alan, clapping the disconsolate one on the shoulder. Canst change thy robe for a jerkin once more at the abbey, unless perchance you have a friend near at hand. That have I, he answered, and close, but I care not to go nigh in this plight, for his wife hath a jibing tongue, and will spread the tale until I could not show my face in any market from Fordingbridge to Southampton. But if you, fair sir, out of your kind charity, would be pleased to go a matter of two bow-shots out of your way, you would do me such a service as I could scarce repay. With all my heart, said Alan readily. Then, take this pathway on the left, I pray thee, and then the deer-track which passes on the right. You will then see under a great beech-tree the hut of the charcoal-burner. Give him my name, good sir, the name of Peter the Fuller of Lymington, and ask him for a change of raiment, that I may pursue my journey without delay. There are reasons why he would be loath to refuse me. Alan started off along the path indicated, and soon found the log-hut where the burner dwelt. He was away, faggot-cutting in the forest, but his wife, a ruddy, bustling dame, found the needful garments and tied them into a bundle. While she busied herself in finding and folding them, Alan Edrickson stood by the open door, looking in at her with much interest and some distrust, for he had never been so nigh to a woman before. She had round, red arms, 
a dress of some sober woollen stuff, and a brass brooch the size of a cheesecake stuck on the front of it. "'Peter the Fuller,' she kept repeating, "'Marry come up. If I were Peter the Fuller's wife, I would teach him better than to give his clothes to the first knave who asks for them. But he was always a poor, fond, silly creature, was Peter, though we're beholden to him for helping to bury our second son Watt, who was apprenticed to him in Lymington in the year of the Black Death. But who are you, young sir?' Um, "'I am a clerk on my road from Bewley to Minstead.' "'Aye, indeed. Hast been brought up at the Abbey, then?' I could read it from thy reddened cheek and downcast eye. Hast learned from the monks, I trow, to fear a woman, as thou wouldst a lazar-house. Out upon them, that they should dishonour their own mothers by such teaching! A pretty world it would be with all the women out of it. Heaven forfend that such a thing should come to pass, said Alan. Amen and amen! But thou art a pretty lad, and the prettier for thy modest ways. It is easy to see from thy cheek that thou hast not spent thy days in the rain and the heat and the wind, as my poor Watt had been forced to do. I have, indeed, seen little of life, good dame. Wilt find nothing in it to pay for the loss of thy own freshness. Here are the clothes, and Peter can leave them when he next comes this way. Holy Virgin, see the dust upon thy doublet. It were easy to see that there is no woman to tend to thee. Mm, so, that's better. Now, bust me, boy. Alan stooped and kissed her, for the kiss was the common salutation of the age, and, as Erasmus long afterwards remarked, more used in England than in any other country. Yet it sent the blood to his temples again, and he wondered, as he turned away, what the abbot Berghersh would have answered to so frank an invitation. He was still tingling from this new experience when he came out upon the high road, and saw a sight which drove all other thoughts from his mind. Some way down from where he had left him, the unfortunate Peter was stamping and raving tenfold worse than before. Now, however, instead of the great white cloak, he had no clothes on at all, save a short woollen shirt and a pair of leather shoes. Far down the road a long-legged figure was running with a bundle under one arm and the other hand to his side, like a man who laughs until he is sore. "'See him!' yelled Peter. "'Look at him! You shall be my witness. He shall see Winchester jail for this. See where he goes with my cloak under his arm!' "'Who then?' cried Alan. "'Who but that cursed brother John? He hath not left me clothes enough to make a galley-bagger. The double-thief has cozened me out of my gown.' "'Stay, though, friend. It was his gown,' objected Alan. "'It boots not. He hath them all, gown, jerkin, hosen, and all. Gramercy to him that he left me the shirt and the shoon. I doubt not that he'll be back for them anon.' "'But how came this?' asked Alan, open-eyed with astonishment. "'Are those the clothes? For dear charity's sake give them to me. Not the Pope himself shall have these from me, though he send the whole College of Cardinals to ask it. How came it? Why, you had scarcely gone, ere this loothly John came running back again, and when I oped mouth to reproach him, he asked me whether it was indeed likely that a man of prayer would leave his own godly raiment in order to take a layman's jerkin. He had, he said, but gone for a while that I might be the freer for my devotions. On this I plucked off the gown, and he, with much show of haste, did begin to undo his points. But when I threw his frock down, he clipped it up, and ran off all untrust. 
leaving me in this sorry plight. He laughed so the while, like a great crooking frog, that I might have caught him had my breath not been as short as his legs were long. The young man listened to this tale of wrong, with all the seriousness that he could maintain, but at the sight of the pursy red-faced man, and the dignity with which he bore him, the laughter came so thick upon him that he had to lean up against a tree-trunk. The fuller looked sadly and gravely at him, but finding that he still laughed, he bowed with much mock politeness, and stalked onwards in his borrowed clothes. Alan watched him until he was small in the distance, and then, wiping the tears from his eyes, he set off briskly once more upon his journey. End of chapter 3